It's Wednesday, January 4th from Peach Fish Productions. I'm Bob Garfield filling in for Mike Pesca, who is like Frosty. He'll be back again someday. Between the ghastly war in Ukraine and Republican dysfunction in the House of Representatives, another monumental story broke this morning. The European Union has fined Meta, the internet colossus formerly known as Facebook, $414 million for violating EU privacy laws with its ad targeting practices. The nearly half billion dollar sanction is more or less irrelevant. Mark Zuckerberg drops that much every month on clingy t-shirts. What is relevant is that the ruling destroys the business model that made Meta a $129 billion company. To get a notion of how devastating this is, four months ago, Meta was a $379 billion company. The handwriting has been on the wall for quite a while, and the market has been discounting Zuckerberg's evil baby accordingly. Yes, if you are scoring at home, Meta has lost a quarter trillion dollars in value since Labor Day. To put that in perspective, that sum could purchase 8 billion to slice toasters, 2.5 million top end Maseratis, or General Motors Corporation five times over. Because the targeting data used by Meta's Facebook and Instagram is the goose that lays the golden egg. The very same edge rank algorithm that feeds vaccine disinformation and QAnon lunacy to imbeciles is what allows advertisers to get just the right Facebook ad in front of just the right user at just the right time, because every keystroke you type on the platform gives the company insight into your mentality, habits, desires, prejudices, and buying patterns. EdgeRank literally knows more about you than your mother or your spouse, or your therapist, or you yourself, by the way. Meta hung its defense on the fact that the ad targeting is fully disclosed in its terms of service agreement. Uh huh. That document is 14,000 words long and has never been read by a single non-lawyer ever. There's more transparency in a used car contract. So from now on, Meta will be obliged to prominently display the unholy bargain and give users an opportunity to opt out. They'll still feed us advertising, but not based on its intimate knowledge of our fragile psyches. Unless, unless you buy their pitch that the targeted stuff is more relevant and useful to you. You know, if you want Facebook to have keen insight into what ointments you use. In short, the EU is telling Mark Zuckerberg to stick his algorithm up his ass, which is something people should have told him 19 years ago when he bragged about the chumps at Harvard who shared their email addresses, photos, and other personal data with him so willingly. People just submitted it, he said. I don't know why. They trust me, dumb fucks. Well, what do you know? Who's fucked now? Coming up shortly on the show today, a look at how violently certain Russian oligarchs have, shall we say, fallen out of favor. But first, I sat down with Alec Baldwin to talk about unexplainable Hollywood tropes and tics. Mr. Alec Baldwin, up next. You got leads. 
Mitch and Murray paid good money. Get their names to sell them. You can't close the leads you're given. You can't close shit. You are shit. Hit the bricks, pal, and beat it, because you are going out. The leads are weak. The leads are weak. The fucking leads are weak. You're weak. I've been in this business 15 years. What's your name? Fuck you. That's my name. <laughs> you know why, mister? Because you drove a Hyundai to get here tonight. I drove an $80,000 BMW. That's my name. Alec Baldwin in one of film's great monologues in Glengarry Glen Ross. Baldwin is a global star of stage and screen, a fixture of both Hollywood studio productions and indies. You know him, too, as an activist and prominent citizen of New York City, where he resides at the corner of Broadway and Page Six. But one of the things Baldwin cares deeply about is cinema itself. The medium fills him with awe and also disappointment, especially where the big studios are concerned. And so we asked him here for us to pose some very important questions. Alec, welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Uh, first of all, do you know that I invented that phrase? <laughs> Did you? Thanks for having me. It's true. Uh-huh. If you go back in the annals of talk shows, people would say, uh, well, thanks for coming on. And people would say, you're welcome. Because the idea was that the host needed that talent more than the other mm -hmm. way around. Then there was this seismic change where the talent needed the hosts of these shows more than the other way around to promote their product. So then you would sit there and so, so then there was this change where they would say, well, thanks for coming on the show. And everybody says, well, thanks for having me. You're thanking the host now. And I think I was the first person in television to do that. I think I said, oh, thanks for having me. Yeah, no. You don't, you don't believe I, it, that, do well, you? Well, it's a, it, it, it's a little bit Al Gore in the internet E, But uh, now, look, uh, in addition to being a big star and shit, you are also yourself an inveterate interviewer, right? For more than right. 11 years on your podcast, Here's the Thing. You've been doing more or less what I am doing right now, right? Right. Yeah. So you will understand that sometimes from this chair, you, you, you have to get into the nitty gritty. No? Well, I trust you, Bob, even though I know it's going to hurt. I know that you are, you are a thorny bush, Bob, but it's okay. Yeah. Well, with no apologies, then I, I will commence. Um, Alec, parking spaces in movies. Right. There's always a big whopping parking space in front of whatever building the characters are headed for. Even a Manhattan. Commissioner Gordon's office. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, there are no parking spaces. Certainly not in New York. Is anyone's suspension of disbelief that willing? Why are we asked to accept parking magic? Well, I think that, um, you know, the... Uh the filmmakers, uh, you know, that's obviously one cinematic license they take. I think my favorite, uh, uh, you know, t tangentially related to this was when Kubrick, who himself was a New Yorker, shot London for New York in Eyes Wide Shut. And Cruz is kind of patrolling around. He's sauntering around some area that looks nothing <laughs> Like New York. I mean, nothing. I mean, Kubrick, who was a master at putting people in the right, the right 
you know, rendered trenches in the First World War, or the French soldier, whatever it is, rendering uh, early man of the dawn of man in 2001, whatever it is. And then all of a sudden we're in New York, his hometown, and you're like, this doesn't look like New York in any way whatsoever. It was weird. Well, he was not ejected from the industry, thank God. So, But uh, getting back to the parking spaces, uh, I have an idea for a movie opening. Are you ready for this? Yes. Okay, it's a cop picture, and it opens in a squad room, and uh, one detective picks up the phone, and he listens, and he says, okay, and he grabs his coat, and he yells to his partner, we found him. Six years, we fucking found him, and the next shot is in their car, and they are racing to some downtown location, and then uh, they get to a building and screech to a halt, but there's no place to park, so they start circling the block, <laughs> but there's nothing. And, you know, the partner says, is that one? The guy says, no, that's a hydrant. And this goes on for 17 minutes. And they finally park in a garage. And when they get to the location, the suspect is gone. Uh, do you think that has legs? I do. My favorite parking story of all time is when I came to uh, what most people call MGM. It was Lorimar, and now it's Sony. And mm -hmm. Culver mean, City. Call it Sony now. But, yeah, we're in Culver City, and I'm coming to audition for a TV show. And I pull up to the main gate for the uh, uh, to get my pass, and the guy hands me the map, and he draws the lines with like a yellow sharpie or a magic marker, and says, "Okay, you're going to go down here. You're going to get to uh, you know Dorothy Lamour Boulevard. You make a right. You go down a couple blocks. You make a left at uh, Lou Costello Avenue, <laughs> and then you're going to go down. And he's showing me on the map who I'm going to go from one end of the studio all the way to the extreme distance on the other side of the studio. And he says, and your parking spaces, you'll see it's three, uh, uh, it's blue, section blue, three, uh, uh, th three, three, two. And I'm like, ah, oh, okay, got it, got it, got it. So, but, but before I leave, this is the punchline, before I leave to go park, I go, now the place I'm going to for the meeting, uh, the, the casting meeting, where is that? And he points to the building right over his shoulder and goes, it's right over there. <laughs> He goes, you're going right over there, fourth floor, <laughs> casting. But you got to get a visa and go all the way to uh, Indio and park your car. We have a courtesy van that will bring you back. Now, back to my cop buddy film. Yep. Uh, I have not, to tell you the truth, sketched out the rest of the, uh, the film. But I do know that at one point, the lead cop will be at a washroom sink sprinkling water on his face. There is so much water sprinkling in Hollywood washrooms. In in what films have you personally uh, sprinkled? Um, I played a doctor in a film, and I think we did a lot of scrubbing because mm -hmm. you wanted to maintain that idea that that because uh, uh, I went to watch for this movie Malice that I did this kind of tepid thriller that I did with uh, uh, Bill Pullman and Nicole Kidman. And, and I went to, and I observed a hundred hours, over a hundred hours of surgery to prepare for the film. And I was gloved and gowned and right down there. But, uh, but I never did that. You know, we was like, you're looking for a towel. You're at the end of your rope emotionally. Like and, uh, no, but after you dry your hands, you look in the mirror, like, who are you? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> what happened to you? <laughs> yeah. All right. Uh, paper cups. Alec, uh, paper coffee cups and suitcases. They're always empty. 
You can tell. I mean, you are a great actor. I mean, Glengarry Glenn Ross, Outside Providence, Streetcar on Broadway. My God, the, the, the credits. Empty cups? You mean paper cups or mugs? Or No, cups, paper cups. They're empty. And when they, when they put them down on the table, you can hear that hollow empty cup thing. Yeah, the little timpani. Uh, paper cup acting and uh, what was the other one? And luggage, suitcases. You know, I always hated that. I'd always say to the prop people, you know, put a few books in there. What's the big And thing? what do they say? Wrap a few books in a towel so you don't hear them thumping around. Is and there like some sort of union rule tricks. against, I mean, is there an explanation for this bizarre, uh, ubiquitous directing choice? Um, I can't think of a good one. I'm sorry. Mm. I can't. I don't know why. You know, like some people, they I guess people who don't feel very confident with props. You know, there's, there are people who are very proppy actors. Mm -hmm. and they like a lot of props. And they like to be working it. And then there's people who... They're like, you know, uh, I remember seeing, I don't like saying this because I don't like to criticize people, but uh, Matthew McConaughey had this thing he did in the first season of True Detective with a, uh, a can, like a, like a soda can, and he kept playing with it and squeezing mm -hmm. it, or I don't remember now how he was like crushing it, uh, doing something where he like, and he kept doing the same thing, like in three scenes. And by the time we got to the third scene, I was like in my room on my computer and i was like i really need you to put that fucking soda can down matthew mcconaughey put it down it became we captain it. queeg's balls uh those metal it balls became, it, it became captain queeg's uh uh balls his steel balls which is actually not a bad name for a uh for a movie captain <laughs> queeg's balls but you know captain you brought queeg's up balls. smoking yeah it used what? to be that actors uh knew most of them could sing uh, most of them could dance, and of course, they could act. There are certain things that you, you're you trained in coming up. And of course, right at the top of the list was smoke. Actors smoked because everybody smoked. But now, right. now that nobody smokes, and you watch actors smoking on screen, you can see that there, you know, there's no inhalation going on. I, yeah, I, they don't know how to smoke. They don't know how to hold a cigarette. Yeah, they were. Well, the, the, that's great. They were non-smokers. They never smoked. I used to smoke. And every movie I do, I say to them, can I smoke? Like I was about to go do this film that fell apart and I said, can I smoke? And they were like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Because they were going to shoot it in Europe. Even if I played a priest, I'd be like, can he smoke? Like, you know, someone says, father, I got to talk to you. I got a problem with my girlfriend. I'd be like, Oh, come on, Jerry, step outside. And I'd light a cigarette. You know, Father Father Bob had to smoke. I, I, I try to get smoking into every movie I do, everything. Now, th this next subject kind of hits close to home for you, and it is eyeglasses. In, in Mission Impossible Rogue Nation, there's one scene where your character, who I think is the head of the CIA, is sitting on a, on a plane uh, wearing some extremely fashionable glasses that are probably worth more than my car. And they're on for about a microsecond. And then you don't see them for the rest of the movie. Why, mm -hmm. why, why put people in you glasses? They never the stay on. Oh, wow. Why give wow. them glasses if they immediately come off? What's that all about? That's probably my fault. Macquarie would never give me that direction. That was probably my fault. Well, it's not just you. I, um, it's everybody. Uh, Sunglasses. Everybody does Yeah, that. yeah. Uh, now you're not going to be able to yeah. not see it. 
but uh, I defy you to uh, to show me, a, especially, you know, someone a marquee name who keeps the glasses on. Well, then there are scenes with people who have, I mean, moments with eyeglasses that are just so arresting. I mean, um, E.G. Marshall in Compulsion. Uh, uh, well, it wasn't his glasses. Yeah, it was the uh, culprit's glasses. When he's holding up the glasses, and he's and he's, and then he drops the glasses. All, all the glasses specific acting he did. Yeah, great movie, Compulsion. I love that movie. It it wasn't good for the Jews, though. I got to say, <laughs> um, I want to ask you about Hitman. Uh, now, I know you voiced a hitman in a uh, SpongeBob SquarePants flick. Yes, Dennis the Hitman. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if you've done it in you know actual live action roles, but in, in there are so many hitmen in the movies. Like, how do they find them? Is there like, is there like a CAA for hitmen? For is there a Kelly Girls for contract killers? Well, what was that thing that they closed down? What was the guy's name? He was the Dread Pirate Roberts. Uh-huh. And what was this thing called? The Silk Road? What, huh? What was it called? In Princess Bride? The dr- no. <laughs> no, the, the website you could oh, go to. Right. The Silk Road. Silk Road, where yeah. You could buy yeah. weapons and, and, and sex trafficking. And they put the guy in prison for some uh, eons of time. Yeah, so it was called The Silk Road. That's exactly right. It was a dark web uh, Amazon. You probably get the hitmen there. Uh, I, I, I want to ask you a related question. Yes. Uh, about the hitmen, which are so ubiquitous in films. I think they'd have to shut down the industry. They they always come out of retirement for one last job. Yeah. You know, no, nothing good ever came of taking that one last job. You know, don't these guys go to the movies? Yeah. Well, they're like actors that way. They don't. They they didn't get the they didn't get the memo I mean, that it's that it's over. You know what I mean? You're done. Mm-hmm. Uh, now I happen to know that you're a producer too sometimes. So, uh, let me, since we were on, on the subject of, uh, of movie tropes, let me, let me squeeze in a pitch, another pitch. It's for a movie I call FIFO and it's about a hard bitten, uh, but solitary accountant who comes out of retirement for one last audit. That's true. Do you be interested? One last tax preparation. Uh-huh. uh-huh. Yeah. One last tax return. You think it's got legs? Uh, these days, who knows? <laughs> these days, who knows? Uh, I want to ask you something um, it, uh, about makeup. Okay. What is the longest period in uh, you know in the film production that you've ever sat in a chair with makeup to prepare for a scene? I had to have prosthetic appliances put on me to play a very old and dead version of myself in Beetlejuice. Gina Davis and I. You might have been a zombie. Yeah. There's a scene where we like become really, really uh, uh, desiccated and we look like ghosts and skeletons. And they had to put this makeup on us that took like um, a long time. It was like a couple of hours. It will not surprise you that I do not ask this question for no reason. Uh, Because... It's my understanding, I did a quick tabulation, about 89% of all domestic films uh, involve a prosthetic penis. Uh, You know, it used to be, have you done Hamlet? But now it's ever worn a rubber dick? I mean, it started with Boogie Nights, and then Wolf of Wall Street, uh, Ratchet, White Lotus, Vacation, The Vow, Hit and Miss. There's a long list. We're the Millers, Red Rocket, Spies, whatever. Uh, And I just wondered if, do you know, 
did they take a mold first? <laughs> like at the dentist? You know, did they have to take a mold? I don't mold? think so. I don't think so. I think even in an industry, uh, not as depraved, shall we say, but in an industry as insensitive as the movie industry can be, they really don't want to take a cast of your penis. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. I think that they have a stock. You know, probably like there's a, probably a guy, the guy to see. It might even be a woman. I mean, you might be surprised. They might say, uh, we, we, what do we, did we schedule the meeting with Sandy? Sandy comes in and she obviously has a big trunk. She probably has like, you know, 150 different penises in there. Like, not to d- dildos, but like real. And maybe she took casts. Maybe that's a joke in her house with her husband. She's like, Larry. <laughs> you know, we need another cast. But uh, 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 I, I'm not familiar. I've never worked on a movie with a prosthetic penis. Never. Does, um, I, I mean, I, I myself can't even get past the rubber cement, you know, the spirit gum. I just, I don't. Uh, but does anyone, uh, let, I, here's something I want to know. To your knowledge, is there anyone who. Um, uh, does his Actually own stunts? No, does his own stunts? <laughs> Who does not <laughs> require? <laughs> does not require the latex. I'm. Is there anyone famously who you know can Tom Cruise it, not by hanging from an airplane, but by you know not requiring the. Uh, so you're saying that there are men who have who have certain features. Yeah, exactly. Who were the renowned men with the with the with the greatest features? Well, the joke was that years ago. Because when you first come to show business, everybody talks about the generation before. So when I first came into show business, they said that uh, uh, Ozzie Nelson had the biggest wand Mm -hmm. of anybody in Hollywood. Then the next one was Forrest Tucker, who was an Uh F troop. Uh They said he uh, he, he was a big man. He was a big man. Uh, And then the other one was, uh, if I'm not mistaken, uh, Victor Victor Mature. Hmm. They said that when he wanted to court... A woman, uh, an actress, he would literally bang a garbage can lid with mm. a certain appendage of his body mm-hmm. and make a like a like a, it was like a mating sound. Now, I have no idea if this is true. I mean, again, the guy that told me that Victor Mature is smacking a garbage can <laughs> lid with his Johnson. The person that told me that is probably home howling right now because they lied to me and it isn't true. And I'm repeating that story now 30 years later. So, yeah. All right. Now, look, uh, we've been talking about trivia and it's uh, delicious and stupid. But um, yes. I, I know because we've talked about this stuff in the past that you actually do have uh, serious reservations about modern Hollywood and misgivings and, and disappointments. And, uh, you know, I'd like to put the prosthetic dicks behind us and, uh, and just me too. And, although that's I probably mightn't have phrased it that way either, but, and, and, and talk about what, you know, the, some really core issues about Hollywood and the movie industry in general that just, that just make you angry or sad. Well, no, I'm not really, I, I, I'm beyond that now. I'm beyond being troubled. I don't really have, uh, I mean, I hardly work anymore. I got seven children, eight children, including my eldest daughter. You know, this has been a gradual process. When Katzenberg wrote his uh, famous memo where he said that, you know, there are, uh, there are stars who earn the money for the film and who are responsible for the success or failure of the film, and everybody else uh, in these lesser roles, 
they're being quoted prices. You know, we used to joke and call it the Gene Hackman role, where some young stars who weren't really that compelling as actors, but they were very attractive and they were uh, au courant and so forth, you would take those people and you'd bolster them with people who could act. So, so, so Hackman would come in and play the head of the law firm or the, or the general on the ship, and he would help to put the Viagra uh, of acting into the piece. And now as we move toward where we are now, you have actor-proof material, meaning it doesn't matter who the star of the film is. It doesn't matter. If you can get big names, if you can get famous names to do the voices of animated characters or do live-action films, but in terms of acting, you know, they wanted to get to that point, I've said this before, where, you know, um, uh, they don't need... The, my favorite joke, which is her, which is horrifying, someone said, if Olivier was alive today, he'd be on a soap opera. Mm. You know, that's like that would be the only place for someone as urbane and as thoughtful and as muscular verb, verbally and so forth. And with the movies you see now, the problem, I think, with the movie business is that all serious drama is relegated to streaming services. And my, my point is, is that they've sucked all the acting out of the movies. You know what I mean? All you need to be able to do is, you know, uh, turn to the boy from some unspecific uh, uh, heritage. And at some point in the movie, you have to be able to turn to the boy and go, you must save the world, Tati. <laughs> and the young man who's ready, he's, he's coming of age. He's, you know, he's, he's looking pretty good. He's looking pretty jacked. You must save the world, Tati. And that's it. At some point in the movie, some presence commands Tati to go save the world. And it might be Alec Guinness, for fuck's sake. It may be John Gilgood. It, How it, many of these movies do you watch? You have no fucking idea what's going uh, on. I'm not going to name names, but my kids have gotten me to go to three movies lately. We went and saw three kids' movies. And I won't say what they are, but I'm sitting there going, I have no idea what's going on. All I remember was somebody who was like, you want to think it's like Patrick Stewart almost, or somebody says, you must save the world, Tati. Yeah, it's, it's giving me the goosebumps. Alec, um, I want to, I this is not the first time that you uh, have subjected yourself to a conversation with me. I'm very, very grateful, and uh, I, I wish you a very happy 2023. You too, buddy. And now, the spiel. It's my sad duty to report the passing of a great name in Frankfurter history. After a brief illness, Oscar F. Meyer died in his sleep at his Chicago home at the age of 95. The famous sausage tycoon is no more. I offered this moment of tribute. Oh, I'd love to be an Oscar Meyer Rest in peace, hot dog king. Hold on, though. Uh, no need to send flowers. This happened 67 years ago. I only bring it up now to observe that 1955 
was a different time, a time when gigantic finned automobiles roamed the young interstate highway system, when the baseball MVP's first name was Yogi and the first lady's name was Mamie, when somewhere in Leningrad, three-year-old Vladimir Putin boiled his first cat. Hold that thought for just a second, just so I can get to the key point. 1955 was a congenial moment in history when a sausage tycoon could die with dignity. No such luck for Pavel Antov, owner of a Russian meat processing empire that made him, according to Forbes, about $156 million a year. He sadly took his last breath a week ago at the age of 65. Antov emphatically did not die in his sleep, unless he took a quick catnap between his third-floor hotel window and the ground. His malady was not cancer, heart disease, or COVID, but lately the leading cause of Russian oligarch death. Defenestration. And though, unlike Oscar Mayer, Antov boasted no catchy jingle or fleet of kobasa mobiles, there is some irony in that his company's name also describes his fatal plunge. Vladimir Standard. Of the nine oligarchs and high-ranking executives and public officials in Putin's inner circle who have died suddenly since mobilization began for Russia's invasion of Ukraine, Four have perished similarly, not so much from falling as from landing. Apart from Antov, in December, real estate tycoon Dmitry Zelenov perished at the bottom of a flight of stairs. Ravil Maganov, the chairman of the energy company Luke Oil, six stories below a hospital window. Anatoly Garashenko of the Moscow Aviation Institute, according to official accounts in September, he plummeted, quote, from a great height somewhere within the Institute. All had, before their plungers, in one way or another, disappointed their president and erstwhile benefactor. The sausage tycoon, for example. His last words went unrecorded, but some of his quite recent words called Russia's Ukraine invasion an act of terror, like Sonny Corleone incautiously mouthing off in front of the five families. What's the matter with you? I think your brain is going soft. All that comedy you're playing with that young girl. Never tell anybody outside the family what you're thinking again. Next thing you know, for Antov, terminal velocity. In Putin's inner circle, the term fallen out of favor has never been more literal. Surely you understand the gravity of the situation. Mind you, if you are a Russian kingpin deemed disloyal by Putin or Otherwise troublesome, you won't necessarily go the way of Wiley E. Coyote. Only last week, Alexei Maslov, the Russian army commander in charge of tank manufacturing, died extremely suddenly after Putin blamed him for the soap place of armor production. Tanks, but no tanks, Alexei. The commander passed away after no illness. Two days before Antov the Sausage Tycoon went through his hotel window, his colleague Vladimir Budinov succumbed to a reported heart attack in the same hotel. And once again, courtesy of Forbes, former Putin deputy Viktor Cherkasov, fired for revealing Kremlin infighting, died last Saturday. Eleven months ago, Gazprom director Leonid Shulman reportedly died by suicide. 
Four weeks later, another Gazprom executive, Alexander Tiolakov, was found dead in the garage of his St. Petersburg home. Now, some would say that violent death is just karma for men who knowingly inked a deal with the devil, silver or lead and all that. Oligarchy has its privileges and also its red lines. But you can't help get spilkis at the idea of Putin taking care of housekeeping before some ultimate revenge. Barzini's dead. So is Philip Tatalia. Mo Green. Stracci. Cuneo. Today I settle all family business, so don't tell me you're innocent. It wouldn't even have to be World War III to scare the bejesus out of me. Just Godfather Part Three. It's terrifying enough. That's it for today's show. Joel Patterson is the senior producer of The Gist. Corey Wara is the producer of The Gist. Michelle Pesca is the COO of Peach Fish Productions. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Libsyn AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to advertisecast.com slash thegist.com. I'm Bob Garfield, and thanks for listening.